Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 113 of the podcast, the topic is tech in tomorrow's learning organizations. Our guest is Michael Lecky, founding partner of Silverback Partners and author of the new book, The Heart of Transformation, published by Kogan Page. In this conversation, we talk about how organizational change drives technology. Behaviors of change, such as focusing on people's third best ideas and how to build organizational culture. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurize.org. I hope you can also leave a positive review on iTunes or in your favorite podcast player. It really matters to the future of this podcast. Thanks so much. Let's begin. Michael, how are you today? I'm good, Trent. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing fantastic. Look, um, you are all about change, um, <laughs> which <laughs> kind of sounds cool, um, but but specifically about change in organizations. Now, explain this to me. You're you, you're. I, I think you grew up in Orange County, California. No, I, you grew I, up in I, Montana, but you I, moved to yeah. Orange County. That's right. Your parents yes. were school teachers, you said. Yes, yes. So they I'm were. picking up on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's working in this space was certainly nothing I was born into. And, and quite frankly, I probably dislike change as much as the next person or organization, but uh, it's kind of an inevitable reality of our world today. So, but yeah, I grew up in Montana and moved around a little bit. Uh, right now, I live on the East Coast where I, um, you know, do uh, do consulting work around change and transformation for companies of all different sizes. Yeah. But my, my, my question, I guess, was, was this, you know, growing up, what, what did you think you were going to be doing? And what did you think organizational life was? Because uh, I, I want to ask that question because, you know, in your book, which we'll uh, really go into, you're, you're pointing out that, I mean, in, in certain sense, a lot of leaders haven't really considered what an organization really is yeah. and when they try to change it they don't it's not that they don't just go deep enough but they actually have to kind of rethink what the project is that they're trying to achieve that's sort of how i read your book on okay. on the heart of transformation but we'll, we'll get into the depth of it but i just wanted to understand a little bit your psychological background because you then you you did do a, an undergrad in psychology so this is not entirely you know so it's you know you were early focused on learning i guess yeah. from your parents and then you did an undergrad in psychology so you followed a certain track but i'm trying to understand yeah. like early on did you realize what, what sort of role you were going to take in these organizations I, I did not i mean it's kind of a there's kind of a what i knew and what i didn't know and so what i knew is i was one of those people that people talk to, you know, I get into conversations that would go a little bit, you know, uh, deeper or, or further and seem to have an ability to, you know, build connection and relationships. And so that's what led me into psychology and all the way through undergraduate, I thought, well, I'm going to be a, a clinical psychologist. That's what I'm going to do, do, you know, therapy. Um, and I was in love with the idea until the last semester of <laughs> my undergrad. And then I wasn't so sure. And so I kind of played this strange little, uh, game with myself. And I said, look, there was one school I wanted to go to. I applied to it. You know, it was a PhD program, full ride scholarship, and they had, I think, 400 applicants and they took eight. And I got down to the last 16 and got placed on the alternate list. And so I said, well, okay, that's not what I'm going to do. So um, 
I took a job for, you mentioned Orange County, California. I took a job for the social services agency there because I didn't know what to do with the bachelor's degree in psychology now that I wasn't going on to graduate school for it. Um, and that was my first exposure to organizations, really, uh, you know, such as I can conceive of them. And it, working in organizations, working on organizations, nothing I thought about. But I happened to work in an organization that had a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of things that didn't make sense to me. And so I got interested in why is it working that way? And what can I do to make an impact? And I started doing some things that now I would look back, I would say, oh, I engaged in some business process redesign because I've got fancy words for it. Back then I thought, well, this has got to be a better way to do this thing that we do. Um, and that's how I engaged in it. And I, I got kind of hooked. I got interested. So I started exploring it, found out what consulting was all about, found out what organization development design was all about and effectiveness and um, ended up uh, at Pepperdine in the Masters of uh, Science and OD program, which was, uh, you know, a bit of a, a game changer and, a, and a, a life changer for me, probably in just about every way, you know, personally and professionally. And that's what took me here. So, yeah, this may not be easy to answer, but do you see more dysfunction or well-functioning in organizations if you look back at your career? <laughs> Uh, I guess I would say dysfunction, you know, I mean, there's pockets of, of good function, but, and we'll probably get into this, especially as we start, you know, moving out in, into the future in the conversation, but we have a, a, a thesis advisor of mine from graduate school, Dr. Chris Worley said to me once that we're in a world of second generation human systems and fifth generation information technology systems. And we haven't quite kept up, you know, we sort of, we sort of got to a point where we said, ah, this hierarchical linear top-down model works really well as we get larger. Let's just stick with that. And even though we've tried other things and brought little bits and pieces in, it's not really shifted. In fact, I was engaging with someone recently, um, uh, Dan Mezek, who's a guy who's just brilliant when it comes to what Agile's really all about. And he was just talking about how so much Agile isn't. It's just you're, you're putting some lipstick on the pig and saying, oh, we're agile now. Let's do it in a really linear waterfall sort of way. But, you know, the organizations essentially don't change that much. And that's what I think leads to their dysfunction is that as the pace of change is increased, as the complexity of the things that we're dealing with and the problems we're facing has increased, and as the technological solutions have driven disruption, our human systems, our management systems, haven't kept up in our organization. So definitely on the dysfunction side, it's what keeps me busy. Yeah, no, sure. And we'll get into some examples, but I was just sort of, it's always interesting to kind of think about the, the large picture. And I was curious about another thing, you know, is it, you know, is technology the culprit here or is, is it fundamentally when you sort of think back about all of these things that we'll get into, does it have more to do with the fact that if you start organizing humans, you're putting into uh, principle something that wasn't, you know, isn't so easy to do? Like, you know, we if we are individualistic, you know, if that's your view of human nature, then an organization is an aberration. Even if you are collectivistic, you know, uh, I don't know that we are collectivistic in the corporate way. I guess that's partly yeah. what your book is about. It's changing the the way that we organize as collectives. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think we, you know, we have ways as humans that come natural to us is how do we organize, get together and get things done. Um, and, you know, organizations 
leverage some of that and there's parts of it they don't leverage. I mean, you know, organizations, the way they're set up are not wholly wrong. In fact, they were really, really useful the way they were set up initially. Um, You go back to, you know, the industrial revolution, it made sense to start, you know, uh, you know, segmenting the jobs and the roles and putting people in charge of productivity and all that did great things for society. I think it's just kind of run its course as a lot of the things that had to be done, just repetitive labor tasks um, were, were minimized or mitigated by technology. First, industrial manufacturing technology and then information technology and every other thing we have coming out there. I mean, you know, you look at basically jobs at the, for lack of a more elegant term, at the lower end disappear. And as we move into just the jobs that are more about thinking, relationships, um, you know, uh, solving problems, finding problems, those are not repeat repetitive task jobs, but yet we're kind of managing them the same way we managed, you know, in Frederick Taylor's day, the the guy who was hauling pig iron, you know, but we're not doing that anymore. So, the world around us has changed. So I, I don't think that our organizations are wrong. I just think they're no longer right enough. So tell me about your book, The Heart of Transformation, and how this relates. Because, well, let me just tee it up by saying one thing. In this book, I believe part of it is about how beliefs relate to behaviors. Because yep. And that's interesting because, you know, there are a lot of beliefs in management science, right? And, and I've, you know, I've, I've been at a management school. There certainly are a lot of beliefs about, you know, what is good practice. But yeah. then there's behavior. And, and those two aren't necessarily related. So I'm wondering how that relates to, to hearts, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, I mean, I, I, I've made the same observations you have. So for two plus decades now, I've struggled with this whole issue around the um, kind of the organizational uh, culture and the ways that we work and work with each other. And as I've, I've, I've thought about it, um, let's say, what's the best way to address this? Sorry. Um, repeat the first part of the question again. Is there something you said there that I've lost on that I wanted to, wanted to jump on? I'm just curious about whether beliefs are related to behaviors when it beliefs comes to kind of the core of your, of your book. Yeah. Yeah. That's sorry. The fundamental core of the book. And here I am forgetting it. That's uh, it's great. It, it, it must be Thursday. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so I saw people had all these beliefs. In fact, when even I was in graduate school, one of the things that we were, I guess, warned against was a lot of us that came into this field of organization development. It was, it came out of, you know, humanism and a lot of us were really, compassionate or worried or concerned or thoughtful about people are very people focused. And one of the things we were warned about is, look, don't go in and try and impose your values on an organization. That's not going to happen. They're going to kind of spit you back out. Don't go in and impose your beliefs, but help them fix some things that they're doing and earn some credibility where you can start to introduce some of that. And so as I started working with companies you know, in different ways. I mean, my initial consulting literally was going into groups of frontline managers and manufacturing organizations and helping them just be better at performance management conversations and, um, you know, development conversations with people, all in the guise of reducing workers' comp claims. And I worked for an insurance brokerage and we figured there was accidents and there was claims and they weren't necessarily always the same thing. And so that's kind of how we attacked it. And so I really, I was really interested in, okay, what kind of behaviors need to change, but those behaviors fostered some beliefs. Then I got into organizations where 
we're actually saying we want to tackle culture. And the first one that I really got engaged with was a company that doesn't exist as such anymore, but it was known at the, at the time as Abitibi Price. And it was the world's largest newsprint manufacturer and marketer. And they were very vision and values driven. And I had the great good fortune and maybe misfortune to be a part of an organization like that because, you know, I've, I've worked for a lot of organizations and I've worked with hundreds more. I don't think there's a one that I could tell you what the vision and values were off the top of my head, but I left Avatibi in 1999. I can tell you that it was flexibility, uh, continuous learning, moving with urgency or a sense of velocity, uh, business-like thinking and wise spending. And if you ask me how those things manifested, I could tell you exactly how they show up and I could have a conversation looking at what we're doing to say, is that real? Because that's what happened in the company. So we use these to, determine what our behavior should be. But then I get into organizations, they're like, we like that idea. We're going to come up with the new beliefs. Here's the values and the vision. Here's the mission and who we are. And we're going to be collaborative or we're going to be, you know, whatever it was. And they use these big words that sounded great and nobody knew how to operationalize them because most of the time they were good words. I mean, rarely does the value say, hey, our values are, you know, pettiness, cruelty, and, and mistreatment. Nobody puts those out there, right? They put out our values are collaboration or customers first or whatever it may be. And most people agree with that. Does that matter? Does that matter? Does that matter when, when a company puts in these platitudes? When, when companies start putting in platitudes into values, which, uh, you know, essentially all of these value statements are platitudes. Right. I would argue. Right. I, I would they start. They start out that way. They start out that way. That, and that's the very point, I think, is that you can't start there. And they do. They figure, let's just state right. the new beliefs and everyone will adopt them. Now, an organization where you uncover what it is you actually seem to believe and start to give words to it and then dialogue about it, then they're useful. Most of the rest of the time, everyone just says, well, those are good things. We're already doing them. So I don't have to change. So they really have little to no impact because their platitudes we can all agree with. So great, I, I, I'm, I'm collaborative, I'm energetic. Though, what's 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 the problem? I don't have to do anything different because we all generally see ourselves in a pretty positive light. So I don't think they do much at all. Whereas if you start to introduce behaviors and then reflect back on what do those behaviors mean? How do those what what, are, what beliefs do those reflect or what assumptions do those reflect? That can be really interesting. Um, and behaviors can change beliefs because if you start acting in a different way, it starts to challenge assumptions you had about the right way to act, if that makes sense. Yeah. Look, I, I'm so curious about a lot of aspects of this. One of the things, and we'll get into these, uh, I guess you have six sort of principles and we were, you know, we have been foreshadowing some of them. I'm, I'm also curious about some of the larger organizations you've worked for, because I know you worked for GE, so we need, absolutely need to cover that and you write about it as well. <laughs> but, but maybe initially... Have you seen organizations where there are pockets that have this process of exploration and then other pockets that are stepping too quickly into some sort of executional mode? Like, in other words, you know, so often we think about an organization, we say, oh, you know, GE had that culture or, you know, X had th that culture. But, but isn't it also true that, you know, individuals create their own pockets? Leaders, leaders can create their own subcultures. And oh, yeah principles and can be, uh, you know, much more functional or dysfunctional, no matter what framework they work within. Yeah, no, I, you're absolutely right. I have seen that. In fact, I have an organization I'm working with, uh, that I can't disclose who they are, but they um, do a type of business process outsourcing. But 
there's a, a lot of different projects tied to different entities and they're almost like little subunits of the, of the business. They're all doing theoretically the same thing, but how it gets done, how they build the software, how they build the business processes, how they staff it are very different. Um, and the subculture in those organizations can be very different and it is almost entirely driven by the leadership and the key people in the organization. Uh, and they literally can sit side by side, have all the same corporate functions feeding them, but one can be, uh, you know, uh, very, very agile, very, um, uh, you know, low ego, very collaborative. Another one can be, you do what the boss says, you're going to get squashed like a bug. And they're all in the same organization. And this, this company, just because their projects are so different for a long term has really exacerbated that. But I think to your point, you find it, you find it everywhere in organizations that, you know, the way someone, leads um, the people that they have under them has a great influence on them as individuals and as a group. I mean, we all know that we leave managers, you know, not jobs most of the time. I think that, you know, leaders create cultures and subcultures um, first, uh, that they have to be an example, a role model of, of the culture they want or whatever culture they role model or whatever values they role model or display become the ones that take root in the organization, either in small pockets or across it, if they're consistent. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But I mean, is it, does your sort of book or your theory on this claim that necessarily there has to be one set of values? I'm just thinking realistically in a uh, world that's like splitting up, I would just, you know, is it necessarily something behind the organization, uh, you know, like the corporation where you necessarily always have to have the same culture in order to be productive? I'm just asking the question yeah. whether, whether it's possible to envision an organization where, you, where you're actually nurturing the differences. Yeah, I, I think a little bit of both. I mean, if you want to look at, take the second part of the question, look at nurturing differences. Think of, um, you know, the alphabet companies, right? Formerly known as Google. You've got the main Google business which is basically scaling and, and servicing, you know, products they've built. Uh, you've got Google Ventures just going out and investing and taking more risk and finding things that will eventually become the things the other group scales. And you've got X, right? Moonshots, right? And they're doing crazy stuff knowing that most of it won't work, but something's going to spark because of it. They have different cultures around their risk tolerance and around the, you know, return on investment ratios. Very different. But they do share some basic core values and they work hard and they struggle sometimes to keep those core values. And I, and I think that's because, not because the core values are so much, um, this is the, 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 the form we all follow, but the core values are the place to hold the dialogue and, and change uh, and transformation is a, is a dialogic process. It's the matter of looking at where we are and where we want to go and talking about how we get there. And at a top level, it's, it's interesting, but actually not very effective. It's all the, all the small levels we're saying, okay, we're going to, you know, become this. So we're going to, you know, move from being a, 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 a like a GE, we're going to move from being a manufacturer, a marketer of big, beautiful machines and a servicer of big, beautiful machines to a platform as a service. It's a great strategy. I think it was the right strategy but it had to get implemented, executed in little micro ways. And what they were used to was saying, here's what we want to do. Now execution is going to travel down the pyramid. 
and that takes time. And it means at any one of those points, a misinterpretation takes it the wrong direction. Whereas if everyone is clear on where we're going and they start to have the conversation, what's easy about that? What's difficult about that? How those values manifest? I mean, they're platitudes until they mean something. I can, I, I started the Abitibi ones with, um, uh, you know, flexibility and continuous learning. We've heard continuous learning for decades, but I know what it means there. I know what it means. I know that it means that at the end of making a decision, we stop and look at our decision-making process. I know that it means that we absolutely take the time to choose and mentor people and have a formal program around that. Now, it might not mean that elsewhere, but that's what it meant there. So you have to give those platitudes life. And that's through the dialogue and the behaviors that result, in my view. Well, it's a fascinating example because too many of us, right? We, if you were looking or if you were working in a, you know, at a business school, GE was a paradigm example of a good to great organization that no one thought would fail. I'm sure there were people now who claim, you know, we, we understood, but arguably they've been through, you know, a, a series of rough patches since, you know, even since that strategy. But, you know, the strategy was, of course, because there were some changes in the market, but so you've written about this, you've been in there, uh, you know, during that period of change. Is it not enough then to have an executive that, you know, Jeff ML2 arguably understood at least some of the changes that needed to be, to be made, but that's not enough then, I guess, in this new landscape to, to, because it's, it's a truism of management science is that, you know, you got to have leadership buy-in and you, you got to get the, you know, and then it'll trickle down. And you sort of said it earlier as well, but it seems to me that that's a nice belief, but it's actually not behavior. You right. know, it might actually induce that kind of behavior and it's a way to scale. It's just not sufficient. Yeah. Well, I think you're right because. So what is those, what are those other things? Well, that I needed because I'm trying to get it to start a discussion on your six principles, which, and, and before I, I, I'm going to list them and then I'll give you a chance to kind of just jump into the GE example, which I think is actually f fascinating here. All of them to me lead up to this uh, comment you have somewhere in your book about what is my, what is your third best idea? I was <laughs> yeah. fascinated by your discussion on this and you're, you know, I'm going to let you explain it uh, in, in a second. But the role of curiosity just seems to me, it's just like, you got to always go deeper. That's to me is what your book says yes. to me. And yeah. if you just ask people, you know, what do you think we should do? Everybody for the sake of like, they think like, all right, let's just be exhaustive. I'm going to come up with an alternative A and B to look good here. Of course, I like alternative A, so let's stop the discussion. Yeah. But you're saying a good organization, a good leader, or a good employee will always offer many more ideas because it is when you surface, I mean, you can explain it yourself, but it is when you surface more of the alternate realities that you really have started to understand the problem, you know, that you have looked at the elephant from all sides, essentially. G give me a sense of that first, and then we'll go into these six principles that I thought were pretty, uh, pretty classic. Sure. Well, uh, uh, so let me let me uh, do two things there. One, um, address real quick the first part of the question, which is about you know the leader and, and Jeff having the idea. I think that I, I believe with my whole heart, uh, go on the record for it, that I think that Jeff had absolutely the right idea. It absolutely right. nailed it and 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 nailed it early. And as he saw things in the organization, had the resources to do it. I think that part of the problem 
was that GE was an execution culture. You got stuff done, right? I mean, the, the claim to fame was you hired the best people and you trained them at the Crotonville facility to be the greatest leaders. And they worked to come up with great ideas and everybody could just execute the heck out of it and get it done quickly uh, and efficiently. And that was a brilliant strategy until it no longer was. And so when they moved into a place where now what we're doing is we're coding and developing software and making this change, there's a different path to success. It's, it's far less controlled. It's why we went again from waterfall to agile in most places is because you had to have people who were close to the customer learning, pivoting, and changing. And I think that Jeff had absolutely the right idea, but I think GE was built to execute it not to let people explore it and figure it out on their own. You know, there were a lot of a lot of controls. And that's because we had at one point the best people in control. But you know what? They were still really good people. I, I don't think I've ever worked with smarter people. And I worked with at GE, you know, Gartner and them both. It was amazing. But they 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 managed the same way. We didn't get them in time to manage. They were in the wrong paradigm, Michael. Yep. They were in the wrong paradigm is the problem, right? They were yeah. just, you know, in the Kuhnian sense, they were in one paradigm. And even though they sort of believed that they all needed to go to the next paradigm, they, they hadn't, they didn't know how to live that, that next iteration of. Well, that's, of that's business. it, Tron. And that's the core of the behavior and belief thing is we will hear a new idea. We'll hear a new paradigm, right? And we'll say, yep. that makes sense. I like that. That appeals to me. And then somewhere in the back of our brain, a subconscious voice says, and hey, now that I agree with that and have told people, I must be behaving accordingly. But our behaviors are driven by the habits we've had for a long time. And we start looking around us to see who's not behaving that way. We don't look in the mirror first and say, okay, what actions will I take today that I take every day don't fit with this new paradigm and start with me? What are my behaviors? We start with, I have a belief and now I want you to change and that just hasn't worked for us because we haven't changed. And I can I can tell, you know, I could tell my kids all day long to do or say one thing, but if I'm doing or saying the opposite, you know what they're gonna follow. They're gonna do what I do, not what I say. It's the same thing in organizations, very, you know, very simple formula. Well, to, you uh, talk about leadership vulnerability in there, you know, yeah. it's, it's about being vulnerable and showing, you know, I, I think you, you were telling me about a, a leader at Microsoft that you had been uh, tracking yeah. for, for, for that reason. You had a very cool anecdote. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's certainly it's in the book. I can tell you about that. It's um, so uh, JP Courtois, who is one of the most senior guys and probably arguably the number two guy at Microsoft um, is, uh, you know, is, is a person who he's, he's fairly um, you know, he's well put together. He, you know, kind of keeps his own counsel. He's not loud and boisterous, um, but a very well-respected leader and, and, a, and a brilliant guy who's, you know, done some amazing things with the foundations he's created and stuff. But he got on stage um, in, in front of 5,000 other Microsoft employees at Microsoft Ready to be coached. And the reason he did this is because Microsoft has said, look, we can't be providing just answers anymore we have to get really good at making sure the questions are clear. We have to be the thinking partner for our clients to find all the right questions. And then you know what? The ones we can answer, we'll gladly answer. And the ones we can't, we'll send them elsewhere. But that's how we have to change our relationship. So being more coach-like was a part of that. So they're pushing this program. And so he got up uh, you know, in front of the stage um, and he was coached. And my friend Michael Bungay-Stanier who coached him, at one point, Michael asked a question, JP Give kind of the answer we would all give. Sort of the first answer, right? Not, not his third, his first best idea. He gave the first best idea. 
And Michael paused and he said, okay, so we're going to go ahead and back up and just do that one again. <laughs> and everybody kind of laughed because they could tell the answer was a little bit surface. And he laughed too. And they stopped and he thought, and he went pretty deep, probably to his third best answer right away. And people were kind of shocked because he was revealing, you know, some uh, insecurities about things, some lack of knowledge about things, some areas where he felt like he fallen short and needed to, to overcome. And that's not what leaders generally do. You don't get up and talk about your shortcomings and how you're dealing with them. You get up and tell everyone how you've done great. But this opened up for that organization, the ability to say, hey, well, <laughs> I mean, as great as this guy is, as much as I revere him, if he's struggling, if he still needs to learn, then it's okay for me. So I think he role modeled that, you know, what I call in the book, changing before protecting. He could have protected himself, but he decided to go ahead and do something different and take a risk and be more vulnerable. And his impact is, is still felt at, uh, at Microsoft. When I talk to people there, they're like, yeah, that was, that was amazing. And it made me realize that we're serious about this. It's not just the latest, you know, idea that we're being pushed out. We really mean it. And our leaders are doing it first. I, I love that. And I think now, I, I, you know, we're, we're ready for these six uh, principles. And, you know, obviously people should read your book. That We're not going to go through the book here. But uh, now I think there's some context. So, you know, when you say exploration before execution, I, 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 you know, I, I, from this conversation even, I get a little bit of an idea about what you mean. It is this learning mindset. And, you know, we can talk about it. Number two, you said learning before knowing. There's no point in claiming that you know, or you actually don't know anything unless you have learned what there is to learn, right? So even if you want to execute, uh, th there is some learning involved. I'm curious about that as well. And then changing before protecting. So change mm -hmm. is, uh, uh, you know, occurs and uh, you can't just start protecting an asset before, I, that's what I understand from it, before you've really either changed yourself or, or understood it in a certain way. Um, yeah. Let me just run through the other four and then, you know, you can pick it up at any point here. But pathfinding, you said, instead of following, mm -hmm. I, uh, that's, in, you know, intuitively, it's a great metaphor, right? P finding paths. It's something that I really enjoy doing certainly you know in the forest anyway and then innovating before replicating you know replication has a massive role in industrial organizations right well, replication is scale right yeah. but you're saying uh that's not everything you can't just jump straight to the replication part i i, I loved that and i'm sure there's examples we could chat about for all of them and then your last point here is on, on humanizing before organizing i guess for me that that's sort of when I want to want to maybe stop on because your whole book is about humanizing. Yeah, and and we haven't talked so much about technology yet. Maybe this is kind of a pivot point for for the conversation. Uh, you did mention that human systems, in your view, haven't evolved the way that technologies and technology system have evolved in the organization. What what do you make of that? Well, so think about great relationships you have, great, you know, groups or communities you're a part of, you have a relationship with the whole person as far as you know them, right? And then you come to work and we say, and that's not a person, that's not Trond, that's an accountant, that's uh, a coder, you know, that's an HR executive. And so we, we get reduced to our roles because it's easier to manage. And if human beings are fungible and the roles in the org chart are what matters, then when one goes, we can replace another and it's efficient. So we've done a lot of things that are efficient that just don't work. Um, now, 
when I when I put all these things one before the other, you know, pathfinding before path following, humanizing before organizing, I do that to say that I'm not saying that, you know, organizing or or knowing or replicating or scaling or executing are inherently bad. They're not. In fact, they were good and for a while they were the dominant thing that got us where we are. They're just once again no longer enough. And there's something you need to kind of encase them in. So you can organize. But if you organize without actually knowing who each other is, then the organization is fairly uninformed and has to, by definition, treat everyone as a fungible asset that sits in the box. And so, and I mentioned this before, when you look at true, like, agile teams, what's fascinating about them is they know each other. They know each other's strengths and weaknesses and contributions. They know each other's kind of personal lives sometimes as well. So it's like, you know what? We've got to do this and you can't be here tonight because the thing with your kids, but I can, I don't have them. And so they reorganize to get their work done and achieve an outcome all on their own based upon their knowledge of each other. They don't just say, here's the org chart and we wait for HR to change it before we do anything different. Most of our organizations, that's exactly what we do. You know, the times I've heard stay in your swim lane is the safest thing because we've got the metrics that say if you do things in your swim lane, get your goals accomplished, then everything's good. Because there's this myth that if every part does the things we've prescribed for it, it all adds up to virtue. And of course, it doesn't. I mean, you have organizations where everybody meets or exceeds their goals and meets or exceeds their bonus target, but yet the whole organization underperforms. You know, uh, how can that actually be? Well, it's because we're treating it like a machine not more like, you know, a, a bit of a village and sub-villages where we get to know each other and then are a part of how we organize or are a part of the exploring or something else. Is that is that useful? Yeah, that's super useful. Uh, by the way, uh, in your intro, you talk about swimming. You, yeah. <laughs> you use an example of, of swimming. You weren't such a great swimmer yourself. Yeah. You're a learned swimmer. Yeah. Well, as I told the story about learning to swim when I'd, I'd lost some weight and started doing triathlons and it, it shows up again at the, um, at the end of the book, because I went to a program called total immersion and they teach you like 32 different points of the whole swim stroke. Right. And it adds up and over a two day intensive, you get it all and they help you pull it all together and they're coaching you through it. And it, it, it transformed, it transformed my swimming, you know, completely transformed. It went from 25 strokes to cross a pool to like 14 in two days. It's unbelievable. But as you leave, you realize that they're not going to be there to hold your hand the next time you're in a pool, the next time you're in a lake or whatever. And, and there's too many things to remember. And so they start out with say, hey, just pick one thing. Just swim, but pick one thing and work on that. And then next time, pick a different thing and work on that. And the rest, just swim. You know how to swim better. Trust yourself and just improve pieces at a time. And so for me, I, I think that's true for change for humans as well as for organizations. You find the spot that's most likely that you have energy around, that you have a coalition of the willing and you start to make a change there. And it's back to your point, almost the beginning of this on kind of those, you know, micro parts within an organization, you start to make change happen where you can make change happen and don't go for the systemic thing. I mean, you, you can't change a system systemically, which is kind of a weird thing to say, but you can't, you have to find little pockets and let it grow and let it have success and get people curious about what's happening and almost make it a pull as opposed to a push. Otherwise, you need to get out there and you won't I, do anything I love, different because you I can't love do this. it all. Well, you know, 
I have also had some experiences in, I guess, adult learning and, and on-the-job training and all of the stuff we have to do these days. Uh, you know, when we work in teams, when we're trying to teach others, but also to ourselves. Like micro-learning seems to be the only realistic approach. You can't really, as an adult with responsibilities, you don't have the luxury that I had when I was a student uh, or I took the luxury. I sort of said, I want to learn and you know you dive in head first and just kind of focus on what you want to learn that's at least how I was most efficient so the ideal picture is you know you have full immersion you can make all these choices but when you have responsibilities the micro learning uh, picture is much more realistic it seems right you you pick yeah. one little thing and you learn I, I love your swimming analogy I think learning and swimming it's it's just realism, right? Because also, if you don't do it right, you sink literally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I, that's why I was bringing that up, and I think you know, so many of us when we think about technology in the workplace, you, you can get very overwhelmed because you know, even for me, I, I manage a, a lot of different technologies, and I think about their roles in the future. But if I every morning had to say, you know, today I'm going to study the latest in quantum, I'm going to also dive into AI and how that relates, and then. I'm going to certainly look into life science and especially synthetic biology on the latest development in CRISPR. I mean, if I did all of that in one morning, I wouldn't really learn anything. No. Right? And, you have to focus no matter how advanced you start out. Yeah. And, and we've all seen it's the technology is there or it's coming and it's coming quickly. It's our catching up to it. So uh, one of the uh, gentlemen that endorsed my book is a friend from way back, Mike Capone, who's now the CEO of um, a click, you know, the, the data visualization company. And what's fascinating is they can go into a company and they can put in incredibly accurate, useful, timely dashboards that tell you everything you need to know to make great decisions. But if the people reading those dashboards don't feel they have the power to make those decisions without being punished, they're not going to make them. So you can give people all the tools but they have to feel they're empowered to use those tools. And, you know, we've done a lot of exposing people to data and information, but we've done far less about letting go of control and letting go of power because that's one of the things that almost justifies our existence at the top of the corporate food chain is control and power. And the person who's going to make sure it happens, as opposed to the person who's going to provide opportunities, give power, let people go and build something that goes beyond what he or she can do. It's just not a model that we're used to. It's not a model that we're comfortable with. And it's not a model we grew up with. We grew up almost justifying where we were by what we'd done and what we knew, what we'd accomplished. And now we're at a point where, well, now that there's too many things to learn and we can't, we don't know enough and we don't want that reality because it's something that makes us feel illegitimate at the place we've achieved. But you're not illegitimate. You're, you got there for a reason. Now, you need to be the person who takes all of that knowledge and information and becomes the person who learns the fastest and the best and shows others how to learn and leads them through the process of learning as opposed to showing them that, that knowing is better. It's a, it's a whole flip of the paradigm of what leadership is all about. And I think that's where, where we're coming into in the future is that less and less and less of any leader's job is about the function they're leading. It's not about, do I know supply chain really well? It's not about, do I know finance really well? I have to know enough to speak the language, but it's about, do I know how to help people change themselves and change their organization for the better? And can I shepherd them and, and, and you know, help them through that without telling them how to do it so they learn to do it themselves so we have you know, a greater power in the organization to move 
into something newer faster. So the, the whole role of leaders are changing and we have a lot of leaders who are fighting it. It's fascinating you say this. I mean, as we're going into kind of the next decade, I guess if you if you think that, you know, your role in the organization is to mold the organization into an image of what you want to do, not only do you seem to be deluding yourself there, but but also you may not last in that organization, right? I mean, my father used to say, you know, you get used to not having one job for very long, right? He was sort of looking in the tea leaves and saying, you know, we're, we're, you're going to grow up in a different world where, you know, unlike him, you know, who was a university professor all his life, like he, he realized, look, portfolio careers is going to be the new, the new normal, for lack of better words. So, so what you need to do is, you know, if you're going to have an impact in a workplace, that impact has to happen faster. And you can't sit there and rest on your laurels and whatever you have built in one organization it may be different in the next, but, you know, you have to have these sort of transportable uh, skills, I guess, that you, where you can make an impact wherever you are. I just wanted to, so if you, if you think about the organization of the future, if there is such a thing, <laughs> I mean, is, the, is there such a thing or will they all just have to evolve, you know, in their own ways, you know, with and without technology? I mean, w- what is your prescription for an organization who wants to, continuously be the organization of the future, I guess, you know, to try to at least be somewhat a pace with uh, the technologies and other disruptions that are, you know, keep occurring. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, certainly, you know, a, a, a power and, and, and value that comes at, at scale to a certain extent with organizations. Um, but we have gotten really, 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 really big in organizations and that, you know, makes it difficult. And like I operate, I, I'm just me, um, but I work with some, you know, huge, you know, Fortune 50 companies as just me because I have an ecosystem of relationships that I've built and I know how to work with, and I can leverage that ecosystem in a way that one big provider even can't um, because basically I'm I'm I got nothing and I got everything right as opposed to whatever just the one block of size is and so I think that we're definitely going to see and we're seeing now a lot of the barriers coming down to partnering and having an ecosystem so um, I was talking to one company a big uh, chemicals company and they have with their digital transformation have had to lower firewalls they've had to um, you know uh, open up you know corporate secrets and take that risk of people finding out things to have other partners who are small, but know how to do something really well or how to get something going and moving. Um, and also don't approach it as a, as every project has to be an everything project. They can fix little bits and start to move the machine forward. It's been a big adjustment for them. And for some people, it almost feels like they're, they're, um, you know, they're committing a crime. I mean, how, how can we, how can we lower our guard? But yet only good things have happened. So I definitely think organizations are going to be more porous. Um, and I think that we're going to start to devalue scale and we're going to start to devalue the all-in-one solution. Um, I was having a conversation last night uh, with um, uh, a guy named uh, Bill Rue, who used to be the CEO of GE Digital. He's now the CEO of Lendlease Digital down in Australia. And you know, we were talking about this and he said, he goes, look, one of the things I found is that the big project was what killed you because the vendor keeps coming with, we need this. If we add this, just this one little thing, just these few more people. And, you know, he talked about in the past, literally had two projects of the same kind going on. One, they focused on this one little problem 
And it was like, you know, I don't know, $750,000 worth of effort to get it up and running and going. The other one, they focused on an entire region. They spent $23 million and it's still not working. And it was the past life. But he said, look, you got to start with the things that you can do and fix. And he goes, get something done. Once a quarter, produce something, make something happen. Don't have the huge, huge, huge project. Have the pieces that you can control. And you'll learn from that. You'll get better at making those pieces. And pretty soon it evolves into the whole mesh of the project. You just can't really start that way. You have to start with some success. And so I think we'll see a lot of those micro successes leading up to larger strategies as opposed to vice versa. That is actually very profound. I, I for one, have been stuck in some of those mistakes myself. Certainly, you know, building a startup, you, it's easy to get stuck in this grand vision that you're trying to do. And I have probably been uh, repeating those mistakes more than I would w- wish to have done. Um, but I wanted to ask you one last thing as we are rounding up. Sure. Um, one observation I'm making on this whole idea of remote uh, work, which is tangentially related to what we're talking about because you know if organizations are about humans and like you said you know scale is sort of devalued because there there is talent outside the organization or at least at the borders of it so that would go to perhaps in the direction of saying you know there's it's going to be very possible to have these looser uh, affiliations and and mm-hmm. you know being remote is a loser affiliation because you're not there all the time yeah but but the other observation i'm making is that's fine for very, very unique talent, right? If you have an enormously specialized skill that everybody needs, yeah, you can be your your own freelancer or you can, you know, you don't have to show up for work because everybody needs you. They will call you. Um, it's not necessarily true for every person in an organization, right? It's a very, very high level role. And then you are the other example. Like you already have your networks. You have an ecosystem role. And, you know, you would actually be, it would be a waste to put you back in an organization because you would then probably have less time to maintain your ecosystem, which is where most of your value now, I take it, is actually you know, coming to, to, to leaders and organizations. Sure. What, what is your, your observations on how to scale remote? Is it even possible or desirable to scale remote work at the, high, you know, at the higher levels? Yeah, it's a, such an interesting question. I mean, because I'm the kind of person that loves to get together with people. And I think there's so much richness when you're together. And of course, we've been deprived of that, you know, for a little over a year, you know, depending where we're in the world due to the, the COVID pandemic, um, and as we all know. Um, remote work is, is fascinating. And I think that one of the things that we need to be able to do is understand sometimes we can have jobs at all levels be remote, but we have to have remote relationships too. So one of the things that many of us have started doing that we never really did before is reaching out to friends and family and having regular kind of, you know, video calls and getting used to having those type of discussions where it's like, hey, you know, what's, you know, as opposed to, well, let me tell you about, which is our usual kind of, you know, video stance. Um, and I also think that there is a, a point. To, so I think you can do it if you start to focus on building some relationship. Now, it doesn't mean always just having the video cocktail hour and forcing everyone to come. It means, you know, having some ability to connect. Like I have a with, well, I have a, 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 um, a Discord server we created to use with one group, and people will pop on and pop off when they're in the office. Sometimes you can say, hey, there's a few people there. It's like my kids do. They'll get on, and they'll all be hanging out doing stuff, but they'll be able to talk in the background, hear things, and join a conversation and get out of it. So it's a different way if we use the technology right 
right now we're starting to move beyond the unidirectional to the bidirectional. I think we'll move to things that are a lot more absorbing, like you talked about um, with the AI, augmented reality as well, virtual reality. I think augmented reality is going to be huge for that as we try to recreate environments that we're naturally comfortable with using technology. But, you know, to say exactly where it's going to go, um, I don't know. And, And you're right. I have relationships now that I had before that have gone transitioned well to remote. And I have new relationships now that have developed remote. And that's a first for me to have a client I've never physically met but that we can sit down and they can really open up about what's going on and be vulnerable and dig into things that really matter. Um, And, you know, I found in the end that just meant that I just had to say, look, I'm going to be true to who I am and I'm going to do it on this video and not let the medium get in the way. And I think the mediums will get better too. So I I think there's definitely going to be more remote work because of the quality of life it gives us. Yeah. No, it's interesting, but it, but it's also, I guess, keeping in mind that yes, it's been a year, but it's only been a year. Like we, we've yeah. had a civilization of humans, right? And yeah. and m- most of us have had this one year, but but is it is also a pocket in in humanity. So you know, who, who knows how long lasting the consequences will be of of just one year? Well, if you think um, one last comment, if you think about the economics of it. If we don't have to pay for all the offices, then we can pay to get people together more often. So like a, a colleague at PepsiCo was working on their approach around this. And they're, they're going to be, you know, looking at not having as much office space, but having, you know, spaces that can be configured quickly for needs and can be booked immediately. And where the system will say, look, OK, who's invited? You 14 people. These are the best three locations. Um, here's what the features are. Pick the one you want. Book your room because they know they will need to get together. But they've also got to talk about. For what purpose do we get together? What are the consistent, you know, guidelines or principles behind getting together and not? And I don't think we've gotten to that level of maturity yet. We've been forced to one end of the of the you know the pendulum. Now we got to find that place in the middle, and we're still we're still messing around trying to figure it out. You have just listened to episode 113 of the Futurized podcast with host Trunarne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was tech in tomorrow's learning organizations. In this conversation, we talked about how organizational change drives technology. My takeaway is that organizational change is perhaps enabled by technology these days, but technology has to be carried by people throughout the organization in order to reap the value and avoid being blinded by apparent quick fixes to difficult dynamics within human systems. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player, and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 93, Orchestrating the Freelance Economy, episode 91, Two Author Podcasters Discuss Tech, or episode 94, Workforce, Humanity, and Future Tech. Did you know that you can also find Futurized on YouTube? You may enjoy our professionally produced long and short form clips from the podcast. Futurized. Conversations that matter.